Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So one of the one of the things that is front and center in every politician's agenda book, it seems, is how we increase more affordable housing. And of course, many people take issue and have taken issue for 30 years with 830G, which eviscerates local zoning controls in order to give the burden of proof basically on zoning to show why something shouldn't be built if it comes in with a certain amount of estimated affordable housing. 830G has been criticized for, among other things, not being a permanent solution. We have thousands of apartments coming back online at market rate this year alone because it's only a 40-year relatively temporary solution, after which time the apartments go back into the landlord's inventory. And most people don't like it because a lot of the zoning laws that we have with respect to density, height, vistas, setbacks – really are part and parcel of the reason why people move to the communities they move to. They like the way it looks, and they want to keep the character of the community the same. And they maintain that it isn't racism that's what's going on here, but rather a sense that all buildings should have to conform and be in character with their surroundings. So, and the other, of course, very, very big criticism of 830G and all of the recent policies that have come out of Hartford are that basically what they are doing are stimulating more multifamily residential uh, housing projects that ultimately do not create generational wealth and rather keep people as tenants indefinitely, which doesn't really help people if they want to latch on to home ownership. So we saw an article about this thing called Brookside Housing Cooperatives. And Melissa Chessman, my producer, and I were very intrigued. We've invited Alexander Kolokotronis on. He is the Naugatuck Valley Project Director with a very interesting personal story and a very impressive educational background. He is directing this, and he's here to tell us about something that is working, that works to create generational wealth for those who want it and works to give actual affordable housing to people who take ownership of the directions and the decisions made in their lives. Alexandra, welcome to the Lisa Wexer Show today. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me on. 
Well, it really is a pleasure. I actually want to begin with your personal story because I thought it was rather compelling. Just give us a little bit of the bullet points of how you grew up and why you've decided that you wanted to make this kind of thing your life's work. Um, Yeah. Uh, So uh, I grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, My mother, a uh, public librarian, my father, a uh, public teacher. Uh, we grew up very, it was a very middle class kind of uh, life. Uh, we rented, however, all my life uh, growing up. And uh, we I'm just curious, was it Astoria with that last name? I'm just curious. You said Queens. Yes, I'm an it ethnic was. Person. It was Astoria. Of course. Absolutely. I just want to, you know, I'm from Woodmere, so everything for me has to do with ethnicity and neighborhoods and restaurants and last names. Okay, that's the way I grew up, Alex. What can I tell you? All right, so let's hear. Wonderful. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, basically at a certain point, um, the, we were paying rent that was around 1400 We had lived there for 13, 14 years. And uh, we felt that the, land, the landlord there was starting to begin to maybe try and pressure us out. There were very cos- various cosmetic changes that were being made and tone and interactions was changing. And so basically, um, in the middle of the process, while my parents were looking for, my, for a house, um, uh, my father, my father died, and the and my mother and I left the apartment. And eventually, the rent there actually doubled, more than doubled to thirty two hundred. So um, that was a it was a, it was a terrible experience, and it took years to re- to recover from from everything from the fallout. Uh, and eventually, I, I got into a, a, a PhD program here uh, in Connecticut at, at Yale. I just finished my PhD in political science at Yale. And thank you very much. Um, and uh, my, my work basically focused on, or my research focused on, on cooperatives, cooperatives largely in workplaces and schooling, as I had a, a professional background in that or a working background in that. And so um, I worked in various spheres in labor, in tenant organizing. I've, I've been doing tenant organizing for the last four years, four and a half years. And so um, eventually I became the, the director of the Naugatuck Valley Project, oddly, because it was uh, I had read a book on the Naugatuck Valley Project years before I even had the faintest notion that I, I would end up working there. And so one of the big appealing things was uh, the Brookside Housing Cooperatives. And as I sort of um, settled in more with the experiences I had as a teen and growing up and seeing what's been happening with the escalating housing crisis, I started to feel a very not just sort of intellectual or policy connection uh, to the Brookside Housing Cooperatives and all the work that the Naugatuck Valley Project has done uh, over 40 years. It was founded in 1983, um, but also a very sort of personal and even emotional connection given the experiences I, I, uh, I had uh, finally sort of processed over the years. So, Alex, may I call you Alex? Yes. Okay. Alex, um, so tell us what is the Brookside Housing Cooperative. How does it work? What is it? Sure. Uh, So the Brookside Housing Cooperatives are are actually six cooperatives that uh, sit on the same parcel of land in in Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh, They uh, are basically each uh, five of them are 18 units. One of them is 12 units. Uh, Each of the co-ops uh, ha- are, have two bedrooms, three bedrooms, and four bedroom apartments. And people there are basically co-owners 
own sh- own a share within a corporation that is the co-op itself, and that grants them the right to vote on all sorts of things uh, within the co-ops. And within the co-ops at Brookside, the co-ops are actually heavily um, self-managed, so it is the unit occupants that make the decisions uh, around budgets, around planning, around renovations, around um, fixes. Uh, but due to, of course, the co-operatives being all on the same parcel of land, there's heavy collaboration across the cooperatives. And so um, so Brookside is this sort of unique model as well in that uh, the Naugatuck Valley Project has a development or community land trust arm. And so we provide direct support around uh, doing trainings, workshops, around decision-making, around financial management, around being an officer. So basically at each of the co-ops, there is a president, a vice president, a secretary, a treasurer, uh, and they all have decisions within those spheres, like like in any other organization that has a structure with an executive board like that. So do you have to... Who qualifies to buy one of these co-ops? Do you qualify by assets or income or both? Yeah, so um, there is an admit there is a uh, admission qualification. You cannot exceed a hundred percent of AMI, and um, you have what? to be able to pay a hundred percent of sorry area median income. Okay, um, and um, you must be able to pay at a maximum of thirty percent of uh, of your income. Uh, so uh, not in excess of that. Uh, also, the max that people currently pay at Brookside is $730 a month for a four-bedroom apartment. No way. Uh, yes. And the, the co-ops are all – are. I get this question, too. The, the co-ops are financially sound uh, due to, over the years, you know, training and workshops that we've done and due to the just the culture of self-management and people keeping an eye on the long-term viability and health of the properties and even at that even at that they are able to 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 keep those uh or we are able to keep those units at that uh at that cost uh, do you live there care. alex do you live there i don't too? personally live there um okay. but uh i'm there quite often and providing yeah. all sorts of support and i'm looking at it and let's just talk about this because i think that this is an underappreciated aspect they're very pretty mm-hmm. at least from the outside i haven't been inside but they have pitched roofs. They have dormers. They were created not like prison boxes, but in keeping with traditional New England architecture. They are in relatively small buildings and look like townhouses. So basically, they were created and designed with a lot of respect as if you're pulling in to a middle class home. It doesn't look like a project. Absolutely. And there's a lot of pride in that, I should say, too, at, at, at Brookside. Uh, there's a lot of pride in um, the feel and the look of the of the properties, and um, to go even further further on that, um, a lot of people at Brookside have been able to. I mean, the stories are some of the stories are covered in the article, but I've heard countless stories of people who've come to Brookside and were maybe not in the best of shape in terms of job prospects or things going on in their personal lives, and they ended up becoming teachers or um, becoming other sorts of uh, uh, kind of prof- taking on other sorts of professional occupations. Their kids ended up becoming doctors and lawyers, and previously there weren't in. in again, in, in a great situation necessarily. And so I think all of it comes together in terms of the feel, in terms of the collaboration, in terms of making people feel like, you know what, this is like a, this is a home. This is, this a, is, this a, is home. a home. 
Right. And I think that that is so critical and so often overlooked in conversation. And people are accused of being condescending or racist. There's nothing condescending or racist. If you're going to build something for somebody, you want to make it look nice. And there's a certain uh, vocabulary, an architectural vocabulary that makes people feel like something looks like a home versus a box. It does. I should say to, to that to that point, um, uh, my mo- my mother is a- Afro German, but she's a black woman who grew up in Germany, and she grew up in a housing co-op. Um, my uh, aunt in Sweden lives in a housing co-op and has been a co-owner of a housing co-op for t- 15, 20 years. And there's a there's a lot of pride in it. There's a lot of a great uh, of a positive feeling towards that in terms of all that's come with it. And this model is scalable. I mean, in Sweden, for example, nearly a quarter of the housing stock are housing cooperatives. And when we were having policy discussions here in the United States in the 40s and 50s, there was a lot of there was there was there was some big moments in terms of a potential to to provide this provide a, a policy framework that could scale this further. In part because of visits to. Um, places where you could see this was at such a big scale. I mean, Brookside is is fairly is very unique in, in the state of Connecticut, um, but there's no reason why there, there there can't be more with the right policy supports. Uh, and there was some of that in New York City and New York State as well in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, the architectural style was criticized, sort of in the way that. Um, that we're discussing, um, but um, it did, however, provide and still provides um, uh, a permanent affordable route for a, a form of home ownership. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So let's talk about that. So, because I I don't want people to be so confused. So they buy, are they buying into this co-op with a down payment and then they pay $700 a month and that's their maintenance to stay there? Do they need to have a down payment to get there? Explain how this works. Because I was reading this and I was a little confused. It said that a woman had lived there for a while. There was some enforced savings as being a member of the co-op. She had gone out to buy a home and then decided to return. So can you explain? Yes. Um, so uh, that's that's right. The people pay a down payment. Um, that ranges. The different co-ops decide on, on different amounts as to how much the, the down payment is. Uh, Give us a range. Then, Give us a range because uh, I want people to understand the numbers. The range is from around two and a half thousand dollars to seven and a half thousand dollars approximately. Okay, so substantially less than a new car right now. 
right? Absolutely, yeah. And okay. and in some cases, even less than the security deposit. <laughs> that's so, right. Of a, that's right. Uh, of an apartment. You're right about that. Yeah. And the permanent affordability piece is that there is a uh, there is a sort of resale restriction to mm -hmm. ensure. So the value of your down payment appreciates over time. So that if you leave, if you sell back your share to the co-ops, you come out with some equity. Uh, but it's also at a rate where it keeps it affordable for the next person to, to come in. And mm -hmm. so then, yeah, the monthly carrying charges, they're not, it's not called rent, it's called uh, carrying charges or, um, you know, the fees for maintenance in mm -hmm. part um, are exactly that, the $730 a month. But again, that's the maximum. Okay. And are these apartments, how do they become available? I imagine there might be a wait list. How do people get to know about them if they ever transfer out? Yeah, so um, and it, it's it's often been through word of mouth, and Naturally. that's something that we're, <laughs> we're working. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's something that, that that we're working on a bit. I think to, to to see how we can get the word out more. They are, but when a unit does open up, there are a number of people who do who do apply. Um, and so as we're getting more and more attention as well, we're trying to figure out how we can how we can better process all that attention moving forward. So, Alex, one of the things that I was very intrigued about, and I think it's important to really understand here, is that the land, which is often blamed as being the most uh, expensive component of thinking about these things, the, the land is somehow donated by a land trust, a land trust we normally think of for conservation purposes. So how realistic is it, or what are you thinking about a model for some other towns where the land somehow could be subsidized. So tell me about what you're thinking. Yeah, so uh, community land trusts are now getting more and more popular, and even this model of community land trusts paired with housing co-ops are getting a little bit more of a play, not, not a nearly enough, but a little bit more in terms of um, basically land trusts that are structured where unit occupants of whatever households have uh, a number of seats on a board, uh, a support organization, someone like us, like the Naugatuck Valley Project, have a number of seats on the board, and then people who are technical experts of some kind or public representatives of some kind can also be on that. And then together are making decisions about ultimately, rather than for profit, the ultimate sort of health, stewardship, and sustainability of that land for permanent home ownership and community uh, community wealth. And so um, what this could potentially look like in other communities is either um, partnering with a community land trust that's nearby. I mean, our community land trust is called the Naugatuck Valley Housing Development Corporation. So in theory, we could actually do things not just in Waterbury, but in other towns in terms of the catchment area we're thinking of. Mm -hmm. And that could actually look like being paired with another thing that's become a little bit more popular in Connecticut with um, land banks. There are more and more land banks that are being created in uh, in the state and land banks are supposed to um, sort of um, engage in land disposition in in favor of affordable housing development and developers. What this could look like actually is land banks partnering with land trusts like ours to say, you know what, hey, there is this land available. We want affordable housing there. Uh, let's work with you. Uh, we'll provide the land to you and, hey, you know, build some more housing co-ops. Because you know how it's done. You, you've already invented the model, so you've already worked out a lot of the kinks. So, I, exactly. for example, I live in Westport, and we just passed, our RTM just passed, a new fee 
that is going to be tacked on to anybody who wants to do an improvement on their home. And that will become part of a uh, fund that will go towards allowing Westport to investigate affordable housing options. They estimate that they could be collecting as much as a million dollars a year. Our town, our town's only 27,000 people. Not everybody is redoing a house. So, but it's, but it is an attempt for Westport to bank some money probably to be able to take advantage of a parcel of land here or there and then maybe partner with an organization like yours to do something like this because the townhouses are very attractive. You've got a 40-year look back where you know what worked and didn't work and it's self-governing and I really like a lot about what I've been reading about it, Alex. I think it's pretty terrific, something that a lot of communities should emulate and frankly, I think you ought to be testifying about this in Hartford because a lot of policy is coming top down that a lot of suburban communities object to, but they wouldn't object to something that looks like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's something that uh, we're very interested in promoting the model more and more in, in Connecticut. It has a long and deep history. Um, there's even more written about it in a book called Banded Together, Economic Democratization in the Brass Valley by Jeremy Brecker. So the even fuller story of how it came to be developed um, is, is, is sort of out there and happy and one we're happy to tell more of. And again, in neighboring New York State, um, there, there were policies that really enabled the growth of tens of thousands of units of housing co-ops and I know when a unit opens up in a housing co-op in New York City, for example, a thousand people will apply for yeah, it. Yeah, because it's, people want it. Because people want yeah. a stake. They don't want to just feel like their money is going towards or to a landlord and that they're never in 10 or 20 years going to get something back for it. They really want Absolutely. to know that something, there's a little bit of a stake somewhere. And not only that, uh, the way you've managed this to keep the maintenance so low, it's a home run. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think I think another facet here in terms of the, some of the housing policy discussions is I've noticed uh, with it, it, from my organizing background, I've noticed that sometimes we can get very we can get very, very technical and technocratic. And, hey, I'm all about that. I did my Ph.D. in political science. But I also notice that often what ends up happening is we have a lot of stories that are missing from the discussion. And that's almost, I think, maybe felt, made us feel, you know what, this is something we need to promote out there. We actually have a story of affordable housing that mixes together with home ownership. That's something that we can tell and, and can tell in a way that that invites people to talk with us and speak with us about potentially replicating the model across the region and hopefully across the state. So I'll keep your email because this conversation comes up a lot and likely you're going to be getting it forwarded from various state reps and whatnot that come on my show from time to time. I'm going to be remembering you because I, I, I really think, look, we've got this um, desegregate Connecticut organization that we know mm-hmm. based on research is funded by the regional planning association, which is substantially funded now by real estate developers. It wasn't always that way, mm-hmm. but it is now. Uh, I know about the RPA. It goes back to my original beginning in 1984 when I graduated law school myself. And at the time, it was considered to be this model of how we should really look at big projects. And it may still be that way. But when you drill down a little bit, it's largely funded by, frankly, New York real estate developers. And they're looking to make a killing all over. Yeah. And, and, and the people here in Connecticut, we don't want that, Alex. That's not why we moved here. 
It isn't. And um, we like our individual communities with individual characters. I mean, if you think about post-World War II phenomenon in this country, what if Levittown had all been, you know, tall buildings with apartments in it? You wouldn't have created the generational wealth and home ownership wealth that you created over 40 years. You just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been there. So, yeah, I, yeah. It, you know what I mean? Uh, what, so, what, go ahead. Totally. What I, what I would say is, uh, especially to the point around, um, you know, people who might be interested, something that we're, we're very interested in doing and have been doing a little bit of is, is, is tours and the premises of the properties so that people can get a, an in-person feel. And so if there are, if there are folks out there who who, who want to make decisions around um, around policy or around um, around thinking up new things and new ideas for their respective towns, that's a conversation I very much would welcome. I, I, part of what we do at Nagasaki Valley Project is advocacy, and advocacy for this kind of model is exactly what we're doing right now as a priority. Thank you very much. Alexander Kolokotronis on the Lisa Wexler Show today. If people want to know more about this specific co-op at Naugatuck Valley, how would they find you or find out about it? Definitely. Um, People can email me at alexnvpct at gmail.com. Um, again, Alex, N-V-P-C-T at gmail.com. And uh, we, can, we can talk further from there. Thank you so much, Alex, for being on the show. Good luck and congratulations on your brand new PhD. And thank you for your work here in Connecticut. Thank you so much. Pleasure. We'll be right back with more of the Lisa Wexler Show. Stay tuned. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.